Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. I'm Pastor Jody. It's, I think holidays bring both new faces and faces we haven't seen in a while, so it's good to see, well, it's good to welcome you all. Those of you who are new or visiting, or those who are just back around after a time of absence, hope to get to greet you and meet you after the service. I'll be right over there. Uh, Welcome. We've been going through the book of Philippians together as a church this fall, and we are coming again today to chapter 3, the first 11 verses. Next Sunday starts the season of Advent, and we're going to take a break from Philippians for that. And we're going to focus during Advent on the mediatorial work of our Savior Jesus Christ in a sermon series called Jesus, Our Emmanuel. So we have that to look forward to starting next Sunday. Today, though, we're going to return to these first 11 verses of Philippians 3. Let's read this together. This is God's Word, and it is eternally true. Finally, my brethren... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I might myself have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss For the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. We've had two sermons on this, these 11 verses already, and it's not going to be the last one. We're going to come back to it in the new year again. Well, let's remind ourselves what's been going on here, what we've already said. Chapter 3 opens a new section in Paul's letter with a new focus on joy and the things that make for joy. He begins with an instruction, finally, for all the rest, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Christian joy, we said, is something far superior to human happiness. It it can only be found in the Lord. It's a spiritual emotion that must be spiritually obtained. It's not to be looked for or hoped for in circumstances or in situations. Those 
change. Those come and go. They go up and down. Joy, true joy, transcends our circumstances. It looks for its source. It finds itself in the transcendent, never-changing, benevolent God who rules over all of our circumstances for our good. And so a true child of God can find joy even in the midst of the worst trials and great pain in life. And there is great pain in life. But a child of God is able to lay hold of joy in the midst of those things. It's every bit as available to him in the valley as it is on the mountaintop. Just as the psalmist says in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So I think it's even true, faithful to say, that a Christian can take even the best comfort from God, the best joy in the Lord in the midst of trials, because that's when you know his presence more closely, more, it's more, more felt. Joy is available in the Lord at all times, and we as God's people are to avail ourselves of it at all times. That's how the Lord would have us live, in a steady state of joy in him, joy and peace in believing. And that's why Paul gives us direction here to, to this as a duty, rejoice in the Lord. Joy is to be found in knowing Jesus Christ, and that's a byproduct of abiding in him, in close communion with him. And so for the sake of joy, Paul goes on in the following verses, the verses that are before us, to make very clear what it means to be in Christ. Joy is in the Lord. It's important to know what it means to find it in the Lord, to be in Christ. That's essential to get right so that the blessings of of the gospel can be experienced, including joy. It's a foundational issue for Paul, being in Christ. It's something that he wants us to be very clear in our understanding about. So impress upon his friends in Philippi what it means to be in Christ, the necessity to remain in him all your days. He goes and he shares again his personal testimony. He's, this is something they've heard from him in person many times in the past. Now he commits it to writing. But he does it in an unusual way. He sets it against the backdrop of a very real and present danger facing the Philippians. That is the danger of a moralistic, self-righteous, works-based approach to religion and to God. That's what Jesus saved Paul from, so he knows it very well. And so he, the whole way he frames his testimony here is to show the superiority of Jesus and the true gospel over that whole system of works and legalism. That system was promoted in Paul's day by a group of people known as the Judaizers. Uh, other, some, they also went by the name the Circumcision Party. That's because that, that was where they put their emphasis. They, they advocated and promoted a Jesus plus religion. Jesus plus circumcision and all of the things attending circumcision and the, the Jewish customs, the ceremonial law of Moses. They went around after Paul where he had preached the gospel and formed churches trying to, to fix what they thought Paul had done wrong. It's great that you've taught them about Jesus, but that's only half the story. What they need now is to receive circumcision and fully immerse themselves in Jewishness and the Jewish customs. That's the fuller picture that they, that they were promoting. And Paul says, that's so different 
from what I've been declaring to you, that it's a false gospel. He makes that clear in his letter to the Galatians. That's like a whole other gospel entirely, and an abominable one. Sorry, trip over that word abominable. It was wrong on the surface, and it was wrong all the way down. It, it revealed their insistence on circumcision, their fixation on it, revealed that they had a works-based, self-righteous approach to God and processing faith in God. So just like the hypocritical Pharisees before them, these Judaizers, they, they corrupted all of these gracious gifts from God, all these signs, all these ceremonies, which were meant to point to God and his provision for them, his righteousness, his goodness. That's what all these things meant. That's what the whole law meant, was to show that you can't do it. You're a sinner. You need God. Look to him. They corrupted that whole idea into a system by which they could prove their way to God, prove that they were worthy of God, prove that they could gain a standing with God on their own terms and their own strength. And Paul condemns that whole way of thinking here in verse 3, saying that it, is basically, it amounts to putting confidence in the flesh. And that's something Christians just do not do in principle. We absolutely don't do that. That's not what we're about, says Paul in verse 3. We glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Flesh, as Paul is using it here, is referring to any advantage, any um, accomplishment that you can point to in yourself that you, makes you feel like you have that much more standing with God, that much more reason to be confident as you approach God in judgment. Paul says, no, 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 no. We don't look for that confidence in ourselves. That's not the Christian way. However, Paul admits that before he became a Christian, before he came to know Christ, he was caught up in that whole mentality and even excelled in it. He says in verse 4, I myself might have confidence in the flesh. If somebody has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Let me tell you about it, he says. Look at all these things that I could used to do or used to boast in. Circumcised the eighth day, verse 5. In strict accordance with God's law. More strict than other people who were circumcised later in life. Of the nation of Israel. I didn't, I'm not a convert to Judaism. I was born a Jew, real Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I can trace my heritage all the way back to one of the sons of Israel. And no, no unimportant son. One of, one of the beloved sons of Rachel, Israel's beloved wife. And one of the tribes that stayed faithful to the line of David when all, all else um, rebelled. I'm a real Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. And here's what I added to it in my own efforts, he goes on to say. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I joined myself with the really serious bunch, those who took God's law seriously. As to zeal, zeal is an important concept to God in the Old Testament, something that he values very much. Look at my zeal, says Paul. I persecuted the church. I was ready to stamp out with extreme prejudice anybody I thought was advocating a different way than what God had established in the law. This was how I saw Christians in those days. And that was an expression of my zeal and the confidence I took in it. And as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So I, I excelled in rule keeping. Anybody who looked on, watched my life, would have thought, 
There goes a guy who's got his act together, who knows how to do it. He's a paragon of godliness and virtue. Anybody judging would have thought that. I thought that about myself, Paul is saying. That's Paul's scorecard that he used to carry around with him and take great pride in. It gave him a lot of confidence before God and other people. I'm doing okay. Look, look at all I got going for me. But what was his confidence in? What did it amount to? It was in himself. We talked about how that scorecard is like a template for us. We might not fly as high as Paul or in the same ways as Paul, but we definitely can add things to that list that we take pride in or are tempted to take pride in. Oh, every one of us. It's endless. And I tried to take us through an exercise so we could sort of root out some of these things that we tend to take pride in. Like, I'm, I, I'm acceptable to God. I'm acceptable to God because I'm an American. I'm Dutch. I'm black, I'm white, I'm male, I'm female, I'm straight, I'm handsome. I grew up in a Christian home. I read through the Bible every year. I read through the Bible in the most conservative, strict, literal translation there is. I'm a missionary's kid. I, 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 I don't smoke. I do smoke because that's how I reclaim my masculine dignity and, my, and I express my, liber, my liberty in Christ. I've embraced biblical sexuality. I dress more modestly than others. I have a, an above average number of children who are all above average. I vote a certain way. I'm wealthy. I know how to work. We even have ways of, in sophisticated ways of turning into virtues things that are disadvantages or weaknesses as it compares to others. Well, he's got that going on. I'm going to turn the thing that I want in him into, that I don't have into like a one-up on him. I've had to overcome more to get where I am than he did. I mean, it is just endless ways in which we can take pride in ourselves, in our own strengths and efforts. And even if Jesus' name is on our scorecards, even it, what's the thing? The word cloud? You know what a word cloud is? You take a document and you run it through the system and it spits out all the words that are in there, but in proportion, the size is in proportion to their frequency of use in that document. Even if in our word, the word cloud of our life and of our works, Jesus is the biggest name that appears, the most often used name in the word cloud. As long as there's something there alongside him that we take confidence in, that we think gives us some, sex, some standing with God, some advantage over others, we are just taking confidence in the flesh and not in Christ. And we're, we're at, very be, at the very best, we are muddled or confused about the most fundamental aspects of Christian faith. We've got it way wrong. We've either forgotten or not yet fully grasped who we are, how corrupt we are, how far, fall short, how far we fall short of His glory, how holy and righteous He is, and are consequently not relating to Him as we should, as we must, if we're going to be saved and if we're going to experience the joy and peace of believing.
That's what Paul has been wanting us to see as he's been taking us through his, uh, his boasts, his former boasts, the things that he used to look to that gave him a sense of standing with God, sense of advantage over others. But then something really dramatic happened to the Apostle Paul. Life-changing, catastrophic, cataclysmic. One day his entire perspective on everything changed forever. And that's what he goes on to tell us about and recount, starting in verse 7. Let's look at it together. Here's how he begins to describe it. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, that list that I have, that I just recounted, all those things that were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is not a little change. This is like a compl- this is an utter change of perspective and what how you conceive of value. What is important? What matters? What can I take confidence or have hope in? It's a total change of perspective and he puts it to us in accounting terms. Like an accountant. You like this, Nathan? In the language of asset and liability. All the supposed advantages and achievements that Paul thought redounded to his glory, what he saw as positive gains, he came to view all of a sudden, in a dramatic way, not just as no advantage, not as just a zero advantage, but as loss, as a liability to him. The word that Paul uses for loss in Greek only appears in one other place in the New Testament, and that's in the account of the shipwreck in Acts 27, that brought Paul to Rome where he's writing this letter from. Luke wrote it, but he uses this same word here. In Acts 27, uh, before they departed, when things started to go really wrong for this voyage, uh, Paul said this, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. Later, when the ship goes down, and the grain is thrown overboard, and all the ship's tackle is gone, and all, every, everything is gone except the ship and their lives at that point. Uh, um, Paul says, men, we should have, you should have listened to me. You should have listened to me. I warned of this, that this would happen. We could have avoided this damage and loss. And I think this seafaring merchant image is a good one to understand what Paul is actually saying here about loss. A merchant who loses his cargo at sea loses doubly. He puts up money to invest in merchandise. And so long as that merchandise is on board ship and dry, it represents the promise of great return. The minute the ship goes down and the merchandise is lost, He's lost both his merchandise, the hope of return, and the initial investment. It's all gone. It's all wrapped up, bound up in this cargo. And now it's at the bottom of the sea. And now he's in the hole. And that's what Paul, that's how he sees all those, those advantages on that list. The bigger the advantages are, the bigger the loss. I've invested my whole life in this. And it's gotten me not just nowhere, but like deeply in the hole. Uh, 
Everything that Paul had in his spiritual account shifted suddenly into the liabilities column of his profit and loss statement. The ship of his life collided with a rock and his entire ego sank to the bottom of the sea. Paul says this happened, why? Verse 7, for the sake of Christ. A better translation is on account of Christ, because of Christ. That took place because of Christ. I have counted all those things as loss on account of Christ, because of him. You remember how he met Jesus? There was Paul on the road to Damascus in the height of his zeal for God, as far as he knew, going to persecute and arrest disciples of Jesus of the way and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. Suddenly he sees a blinding light before he gets to town and hears a voice speaking his name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? And the voice answers, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. In that moment, in those, that simple exchange, Paul's whole world collapsed. <laughs> All of his hopes All of his thinking dramatically altered forever. His whole life crashed against the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the true and glorious King, that the King is alive and well, and that Paul's whole life depends on his mercy. He is completely at his command, and he's guilty before him. That the very thing he thought he was doing in service of God turns out to be hostile, great hostility to God. That's what he's confronted with suddenly in that moment. The awful weight of his guilt, the power and the reality and the majesty of Jesus exposing it. And he knew he was deserving of death. And yet, He lives. He lives. Which tells him something more about Jesus. That he's merciful to sinners. He's merciful. And that he has a purpose for Paul. What is the purpose that Paul later in his life says he was, the reason he was spared? Why why does he, when he's recounting this late in life, why does he say he was spared? If we were looking at Paul we'd think, well, I can see so many reasons why Paul was the guy to spare. If you've got to pick one, pick that guy. Because you get the pride out of it, and then you're left with all these great gifts. And certainly God did use Paul's gifts, gifts he had given him for his purposes. But that's not what Paul focuses on, is the reason why he was spared. This is what he says in 1 Timothy 1.16. Yet for this reason... I found mercy. This is the reason. So that in me as the foremost, what? The foremost evil, wicked sinner. Rebel. In me as the foremost of those. Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience with sinners. As an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So he could show his glory and mercy and his perfect patience 
That's all this is about. Paul met Jesus as his Lord and Savior on that day. And the old Paul would never recover. He was ever after completely, irrevocably different. Transformed. He described it in another place as death. I have been crucified with Christ. I died that day. He slayed me. That is, my old self. And I rose in him something completely different. Seen with new eyes. Thinking in new thoughts. Understanding in new ways. Drastic ways. Everything from that moment that he used to take pride in went into the loss column. Not just the former things, but anything now and in the future. He says, that's, and why, why would he consider it as loss, as something that's like put him in the hole? Because it was keeping him from Jesus. These things stood in the way between the true righteousness of God, the the righteousness that God wanted to bestow on him, and his ability to enjoy it, obtain it, have it. These things that he took pride in actually separated him from God. He came to see his self-confidence, self-righteousness for what it was, a curse. That's the language of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength. Cursed is he, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Paul came to see that his attempts to commend himself to God by the works of the law, he saw those as a curse. It's a curse. He writes in Galatians 3:10: For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. Those who are about proving themselves by the law like I was, are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. What was exposed to Paul in that moment? His sin. His antagonism to Jesus Christ was exposed to him. His lawlessness was exposed. And he knew he was under a curse. That his efforts to obtain righteousness in his own strength were damning him and keeping him from Jesus Christ. And so all his former confidence, his fleshly assets, went right into the liabilities column, right into the trash bin. He tallied them up as losses, sunk to the bottom of the sea. Not just his former ones, but everything, any, any attempt of his flesh to take satisfaction or pride in itself that would ever come up again, he dumps into that column outright. He says this in verse 8, more than that. And that's a very emphatic phrase in the Greek. It's made up of of like five little words that could be translated like this. Yea, indeed, therefore, at least, even. (laughs) So he's like piling it on. I really want you to guys feel how passionate, how strongly I feel about this, okay? Yea, indeed, therefore, at least, even I count all things, every fleshly hope, past, 
present and future to be loss. Just the same kind of loss. Debt. I'm in the red. They put me in the red. And I continually go on counting in that way because, why? I found something truly great. A real asset. I have found a real asset. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what moved Paul to throw it all in the waste bin. Everything he previously thought made him special, commendable, worthy of praise, was just rubbish. He met Jesus and discovered something in him of surpassing value. In the possibility of knowing such a one as that. One so glorious and holy and just and merciful and true and good. Something of surpassing value. Jesus Christ. So he's like the, mer- the pearl merchant in Jesus' parable, Matthew 13, who finds this one pearl of so surpassing value that he goes and he sells everything so he can obtain that. A real asset. That Jesus is the pearl of great price that Paul has found. Actually, it found him. It found him. And it, it just revealed everything. All of his former hopes were revealed for what they were. The possibility of knowing such a one as this is what captivated Paul and became the real asset in his life, knowing Jesus my Lord. This entails something far more than just knowing about Jesus, knowing things about him. This is not the kind of knowledge that is just, oh yeah, there's some facts and I've memorized the facts and I've got it and now I know Jesus, I know about him. Certainly you have to know about Jesus or know about a person to know them. But knowing a person is more than knowing facts about them, isn't it? You know this. You take joy in relationships that are dear to you And it's more than just facts. It's a person. And here he has met the person of persons. The king of kings. The glorious one. And he sees him for what he is. And he wants to know him. So he surrenders his pride. He lays everything that was standing in the way or would stand in the way of knowing this man for who he is and how he is to be known. And he throws it away, gets it out of the way in repentance. It's, it's necessary to know more than just facts about Jesus. You have to go beyond a head knowledge to a personal, relational knowledge of Jesus. You've got to be united to him in fellowship, union, in a personal way. You've got to love him. you got to love him. So when I was young, well, in my, uh, in my young 20s, I knew a lot about Jesus. I was raised in a Christian home. I knew a lot about him. I knew a lot about the Bible. I even knew things and agreed with things in the Bible. 
that other Christians around me were too squeamish to admit about God, about his sovereignty, about his power, about his authority and salvation. It didn't make me love him. It made me really angry because I felt condemned and I felt that that was completely not justified. I didn't make myself. I didn't ask to be born. God, you made me and you condemn me for that? That's how I felt. I said those things. I remember where I was saying them out loud to God. What changed? I have no idea. Except that God revealed my pride to me. The closest thing I have, actually this passage has helped me have better perspective on my own conversion. The closest thing I have to a conversion experience, a true one, was sitting the most precious, important people to me down and saying, I'm not a Christian. That was like my getting my pride into the dustbin, sinking it to, I didn't realize that's what was going on. I just felt I had to be honest. I had to get this out there or I couldn't move forward in life. I just needed them to know. And ever since that time, not immediately, not dramatically, but ever since, I've been loving the Lord more and more and loving his people in a way that I didn't. That's the closest thing in my life to what Paul is saying. I I came to see that all of my pleasing of these people, my parents, was was keeping me from Jesus. (laughs) And all I had to do was be honest that I needed him. That my righteousness and all my attempts to be good don't, weren't going to cut it, couldn't hope to cut it. And they needed to be surrendered to the Lord. Now, the whole idea of a close personal relationship with Jesus has been so corrupted by evangelicalism as a way of removing from Jesus Christ his authority. His manliness. And reducing him to a cuddly bunny who just gives me things that I want when I want them. That our temptation would be to distance ourselves from this idea of needing a personal relationship with him. And Paul will not allow us to do it. This is absolutely the main thing for Paul. (laughs) Knowing such a one as Jesus, intimately, closely, relating to him daily, minute by minute, hour by hour, walking in step with him, seeking to please him, knowing him intimately, is the whole ballgame for Paul. But it's beautifully harmonized with Jesus' clear authority over Paul and over all things right here in this passage. Paul says, I want to know Christ Jesus, not just the Lord, but my Lord, mine. I want to know him as my king. 
I want to swear fealty to him forever. After seeing him, that's what I want to do. (laughs) I want to be with him. I want to serve him. The privilege of knowing Jesus in was so meaningful, so valuable to Paul that he wanted nothing ever again to come between him and personally knowing and glorying in Christ Jesus as Lord. It was worth giving everything up for. Which is what he says he does and did in verse 8. For whom? For such a one as that. For Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Rubbish here is like filth, like street trash, like refuse, excrement. There's no underground plumbing, no no indoor toilets in those days. People took their stuff and they threw it out in the street to run down in the gutters. That's the word Paul's using here. Mrs. Killingsworth was awakened to the sound of me retching Friday morning in the bathroom as I tried, struggled to remove the cat poop from my shower. I think cat poop is the worst. And that's what Paul says all his boasts, former boasts in the flesh amount to. In his view, now, after he's laid eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his glory. Paul used to be captivated with himself. Now, that was completely disgusting to him. Now he was captivated by only one thing, and that is knowing Jesus is Lord. That to him was true gain. And the only thing that held any real value moving forward. Not just as sovereign, but as Savior. As his Savior. The one who graciously supplies all the righteous standing that he was hoping to achieve. Jesus gives him a full account of righteousness. That's why he goes on to add in verse 9 that he wants to be found in him. He wants to be found in him. Being in Christ is an extremely important concept to the Apostle Paul. A Christian in Paul's lingo, in Paul's world, is somebody who believes in Christ, somebody who lives in Christ, somebody who hopes in Christ, prays in Christ, serves in Christ, receives service in Christ from others, is bonded to other believers in Christ, along with many other uses of those couple of words. It's all over his writings. I've sometimes wondered where that comes from, and now I think I know. I think it comes from his conversion experience and the short interaction that he had with the Lord Jesus there. There was a simple question that Jesus asked him, why are you persecuting me? Who was he persecuting? He was going to Damascus to, to arrest disciples of Jesus. And, but Jesus 
sees no distinction between his people and him. You touch them, you've touched me. That's, I think, the origin of this thing that marks Paul in all of his writing and all his perspective forever. Paul wanted that same bond with Jesus for himself. And not first and foremost so that he could be protected from evil men like Paul in future, but so that when he comes before God in judgment, he's, got, he's under the protection and ownership of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to be found in him, found by God in Christ. You know, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And that judgment is so exacting that it is said to include every idle word. And the secret things of all of our hearts. When you stand before God in judgment, do you want to be in Margaret? In Samuel? And Ben? Paul didn't, in, didn't want to anymore either. He f- discovered and saw clearly that that was not going to cut it. In fact, everything he thought was cred, or the thing he thought was the principal cred, turned out to be a lie, hostility towards God. He can't cut it. You and I can't either. We need righteousness. God requires it. And God provides it. (laughs) But not in a way that strokes our ego. In a way that demands our worship, our humility, our bowing down before a righteous one. Paul did not want to have to stand before God in himself. He wanted to be found in Jesus. Found in Jesus. This righteous one. I want to be in him. With him. I want him advocating for me. Standing for me. Paul goes on to explain what he means by being found in Jesus very clearly. This is what he means. He wants to gain Christ and be found in him in this way. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This encounter with God, with Jesus opened Paul's eyes to the true way of salvation that had long been established. That man is corrupt and drowning in guilt and must look to God for help and relief. 
And he needs righteousness and cannot hope to achieve it on his own. That's been lost in Adam. That he must humble himself to receive anything from God, the righteous one. That the way to obtain all that God has graciously offered by way of righteousness, by way of goodness, by way of kindness, by way of ownership and communion and fellowship, is by believing that God can bestow it and will. That's it. That is the way for sinners to be righteous. The righteous man, it says, shall live by the works of the law. No, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. The righteous man shall live by faith. By faith. Paul, all of the Old Testament information about that (laughs) suddenly started to become crystal clear to Paul as he laid eyes on the true glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and experienced his mercy. Have you laid eyes on the Lord Jesus in that way? Have you had your Damascus Road experience? The moment after which all things were new. And you saw that there is no hope in you. But there is hope in Jesus. Jesus offers himself to you. Willingly. Ready to supply all that you need ready to own you as his own, ready to be your advocate before the Father at the judgment seat, ready to pray for you, ready to give you his righteous record in full. He, he, Jesus, who offered his life in payment of our debt, took it upon himself, all the guilt and the punishment our sin deserved, and in exchange for our sin gives us his perfect record of righteousness to be our very own. By faith. Have you come to know him? This to Paul is the whole ballgame. This is the only thing that matters. Knowing him in that way. As your Savior and Lord. If you haven't come to know him and want to talk about it, come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the pastors. Find somebody here who looks friendly and say, how do I know Jesus? This is the most important question of your life. Do you know him? Do you love him? Not perfectly. Paul's going to say, I myself have not achieved this perfectly. He's he's got more to say about this, but this is it. It just carries on like this, more and more and more, knowing him more and more and more every day. 
That's what the rest of this chapter has to say. We're going to come back to it in the new year. Sounds like a good new year theme. Growing in our knowledge of Christ. Forgetting everything that lays behind and pressing on more into that. But have you come to know him? If you have come to know him and have allowed fleshly confidences to creep in, put them away. Put them away now, today. Repent of it as the sin that it is. And trust in Jesus Christ. Acknowledge him for who he is, the righteous one. And enjoy resting in him. Well, we'll come back to this wonderful, challenging passage in the new year. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for how you've preserved it for us over centuries. And I pray, Lord, that as we today reflect on what Paul is saying, proclaiming, that the eyes of our hearts would be open to see Jesus as he saw you on that road in glory, in majesty, in goodness, in truth, and that we would come to rest in Jesus by faith and find that there is now no condemnation for us because we are in him. Lord, may we be found, may every listener here be found in Jesus Christ. And keep us there. Hold us there. Help us to overcome the temptations of our flesh and our pride. Help us to know ourselves for who we are. Weak and helpless. Help us come to Jesus with nothing in our hands, clinging to the cross, and to experience the great, tremendous joy and rest and peace that comes from knowing him. I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.